invite you to read along with me from Acts chapter 4 this morning. Um, We're going to be looking at verses 32 to 37. And um, yeah, I invite you to just follow along as I read. Scripture says this, Now the the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, will you? Um, God, we come this morning. God, we don't just need to know about you. Lord, we need to know you. And Lord, we don't, we don't need just more information about the church God, we want to be the church that lives out the grace and mercy of Jesus in our community, in our city, loving our neighbor as we love you. And so, God, we pray that you'd meet us by your spirit today and, um, and show us the riches of grace that are stored up for us in this passage and, and help us to, to take that and run with it and live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1830s, the French government sent a diplomat uh, to the United States. Um, His name was Alexis de Tocqueville. Maybe you've heard of Tocqueville or read some of his writings. Um, He was also a political philosopher and a social scientist, and so he had his diplomatic duties, but he was also incredibly interested in the new fledgling experiment in representative democracy, and so while he was here, he, 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 he ceaselessly observed the cultures of the places he went, and he took notes, and then he wrote them up. And I'm going to get into our text this morning by sharing some of his reflections on wealth, wealth and money. Here's what he says. In America, I saw the freest and most enlightened men placed in the happiest circumstances that the world affords, yet it seemed to me as if a cloud habitually hung upon their brow, and I thought them serious and almost sad, even in their pleasures. The reason for that, he speculates, that rather than celebrating what they have, he says they are forever brooding over advantages that they do not possess. He was perplexed, and this is, the, this is the, the sentence that really captured me as I was reading this. Perplexed, he said, by the strange unrest of so many happy men, restless in the midst of abundance. Happy men, restless in the midst of abundance. 
Two generations later, John D. Rockefeller proved his point in spades. John D. Rockefeller, by all accounts, the not only the richest American to ever live, but the wealthiest man in modern times, was asked by a reporter, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? Y'all know this? What did he say? A more. Just a little bit more. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. Restless in his abundance. I get that. Do you get that? Because um, money does that to us, doesn't it? Money whispers in our ear promises of security, comfort, status. And our hearts listen. And we crave it because of what we think it can do for us. And I know that we're not Rockefeller a lot of us are prosperous in our own way, and if we had truth serum injected into our veins, we too would say, just a little bit more. I'll tell you all that to, to, um, to get into Acts 4, because here we have a snapshot of the early church, and, and they're dealing with wealth, with resources, and with what we might call in, income inequality, resource inequality, because you had in this little church... Um, a diversity of, 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 of people, right? You, had, you have landowners living beside people who are just going day to day, hand to mouth. You have the wealthy and the poor in community with one another, worshiping, doing life together, and they have to deal with the issue of money, and they have to, they're, they're dealing with it not only on the individual level, like what, what does the gospel say about me and my money, but also just the place of resources in the community, And so I want to, um, I already read the text, you already get a sense of kind of what they're doing, so, but I want to unpack this for you this morning with three questions. Number one, let's look a little more closely at what they're doing. Uh, number two, let's ask the question of how. In other words, what motivates them to do what they're doing? And then finally, what are the results in their community? So what are they doing? How are they motivated to do it? And then how does that play out um, when the rubber hits the road? All right, so to start, um, what are they doing? Uh, they are doing what I'm going to call generous mutuality. Generous mutuality. Um, we read in verse 32 that um, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's what I mean by mutuality. They're all, like they're all in this together, right? The whole community united around this this imperative or this notion of an outward-facing love that was as concerned for neighbor as it is for self, right? A, a place where care overflowed the boundaries and just flooded the zone with, with, with practical acts of generosity. So mutuality and then leading into generosity, practical generosity. Um, there's just this interesting phrase. I was going to summarize it, and I just couldn't, so I'm just going to read it. It says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Um, no one said that 
that the things that really did belong to them were ultimately their own. Now, this is not, and every once in a while, this text, and there's a couple others in Acts, gets sort of held up as like, well, the early church was almost like, like, like communism, like they abolished private property. Well, no, they didn't, because it's clear in this passage that, that they still owned their stuff. It was the things that belonged to them. It was their attitude towards their stuff that had changed toward their property and their resources, um, right? What it says is that they held things in common. That phrase um, translates a Greek word that says in koine, and maybe you've heard the phrase koinonia, which a lot of times we render as fellowship, but it really means quite literally a commonwealth. Um, and that's an, that's an outdated word, and it's a little bit stilted, but that's literally kind of how it translates. And what they're saying is they hold their stuff, their resources, not for their private self-interest, but for the common good. The common good. So here's an illustration. Um, I, I know that there's things like this in Atlanta. My mind goes back to St. Louis. Um, Back when the surface of the earth was cooling and I was in seminary, we lived in St. Louis, and there we would frequently visit an old historic neighborhood. If you've been to St. Louis, there's a big park right in the middle of the city, and around that park's an old historic neighborhood, and all of the houses are like on the historic register. Imagine owning one of those houses, one of those 200-year-old beautiful old houses, right? It's yours. You own it. You paid for it. You have the title. So you decide to cut down the 200-year-old oak tree and um, redecorate the exterior in a nice art deco fashion and put a pool in the front yard. Can you do that? No. Why not? It's yours. You bought it. You own it. Well, you can't do that because you own the thing that gives a benefit to the public, right? That, that yes, it's yours, but you hold it for people other than yourself. Um, you know, your asset has value beyond your own personal enjoyment. Um, now, that's not a perfect illustration, but it's kind of what's going on with the church here. They have learned to view their resources not as passports to privilege and personal comfort, but as held in trust for the community. Still mine, but I use it to serve. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther once described sin, human sin, as, with the, with the Latin phrase, homo incurvatus inse. Homo incurvatus inse. Humanity curving in on itself. Right? That's what, that's, Luther said, that's what sin is. It's not, just, it's not just being, you know, misbehaving or doing bad things or breaking the rules. It's, 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 it's elevating self-interest above everything else. It's our, it's our heart's desires unable to break free from the gravity of self-interest and just, just curving right back in, like light that gets beyond the event horizon of a black hole. It just can't escape. Um, the issue is, is, is your attitude, right? It's the heart. It's, it's not so much behavior as it is the, 
the, the attitude and the heart, the condition of your heart that gets at the behavior. And when you get a big raise or, or tax refund, you know, what's your first impulse? Or with your ordinary resources, your income, your home, who benefits? You, of course, and your family, and that makes obviously. Um, who else? There's a, there's, a, there's a proverb in Proverbs chapter 11. This is Proverbs 11:10. if you want to look it up. It says this, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. So you have a group of people who are getting wealthy, right? They're, get, they're prospering. They're gaining resources. They're they're, they're getting wealthy. And the response of the community all around them is great rejoicing. The, that word really literally means something like exults greatly. Um, now, that's not usually what happens when the rich get richer, is it? When the rich get richer, the city usually rolls its eyes or even groans. Because when the rich get richer, they're usually doing it by stepping on the, on the backs of, of everybody else. But, but, but Proverbs envisions a scenario where the righteous ones, those who are dedicated to God, are getting wealthy and everyone around them rejoices because of it. Friends, what do you have to do to make people rejoice as you get wealthy? How do you have to use your resources so that your neighbors are glad Serve the common good. Do what we see the church doing here. Right? Use your resources for the benefit of the community. Orient your love outward facing. Flatten the curve of sin. Now, you may say, okay, great. Like, I, I want to do that. But the struggle with money that we talked about earlier is real, and like, how do I break free? Like, how, how do you do that? Well, that's the second question. What, what motivated them? What's, what's going on in their hearts so that they're doing this very countercultural thing with their money? Um, well, the answer is here in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. How are they doing this? They were hearing about the resurrection. You know, friends, we're in, the, we're in Easter season. You know, it's the, the resurrection is looming large over the church this morning, and it was over them as well. Now, this is very interesting to me because earlier in the book of Acts, and maybe you remember this, the apostles talked about the resurrection as a way to bring people to faith. It was, it was an act of evangelism. Like, hey, you all need to hear that Jesus rose from the dead so that you can repent and believe and, and, and be welcomed into the family of God. But here, they're talking about the resurrection to a group of people who are already saved. These are Christians. They're, they've embraced faith. They're in the church. They've, they believe in Jesus Christ. 
And yet the apostles are still endlessly teaching them about the resurrection. Why? The answer is because the same grace that saves us is the grace that changes us. Right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not start with grace and then move on to law so you can obey, obey, obey. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ says start with grace and stay with grace the whole way through. Because that grace forms us. Friends, we said it earlier. We, 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 we affirmed um, in 1 Corinthians 15, it's, it, was, it was the assurance of pardon. That Jesus Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, right? In other words, in, in his resurrection, every good thing that God has ever promised is distilled down to its essence and presented to us. It's our forgiveness for sins. It's the pledge of our own resurrected bodies. It's the promise of a creation made new, free from sin and death and sickness and sadness. That's the resurrection, right? The resurrection tells it all. And, and here's, the, here's the important part. It was freely given, generously given by God through Christ to us. We didn't earn it. We didn't have any claim on it. We certainly didn't merit it. We didn't do enough good stuff where God owed it to us. He just generously Gave it. So the resurrection is a signifier of the generous heart of God. And that community was relentlessly processing the resurrection. I have three little kids at home. They're elementary school age. And my daughter is in, in, um, in her math lessons is learning. We were talking about this on Friday. She was learning order of operations, right? You know, order of operations. Um, here's the, here is the um, acronym that they learned. Maybe you guys learned a different one. Here's the one that they learned. PEDMAS. Do you guys do that? PEDMAS? Yeah? All right. Parenthesis, exponents, division, multiplication, addition, subtraction. That's it, right? Okay, good. All right, we, good. PEDMAS. You do your maths in the right order, you'll get the right answer. Church, the gospel has an order of operations. Grace comes first. Always. Grace comes first. And it's so easy to get that backwards, isn't it? It's so easy to think, okay, I have to be good so God will accept me. Um, it's so easy to think, okay, God wants us to be a generous community, so here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna craft some bylaws. We're going to make some rules, and we're going we're gonna to check up on people and how much they're donating, and we're going you know, to be generous. And then God will be pleased with us. But friends, the resurrection says no. The resurrection says that God is pleased with you in Jesus Christ, full stop. Now go and live it out. Go and live out the generous heart of God that's demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what they did. They didn't have the rule book for giving. They had hearts changed by the, by the resurrection of Jesus. 
right? An ever-growing grasp of God's grace. It's a funny, it's a funny thing, I don't know, to me anyway, that the, that the phrase in, um, in verse 33 that says great grace was upon them, literally in Greek is mega grace. And that's it's like an 11-year-old boy describing it, right? Like, it's, that's mega grace. Yes, it is. That's what it says. Um, and when that mega grace works its way into our hearts, as we celebrate and internalize it, as we rehearse it to one another in community, as we sing about it and pray about it and hear it in worship, as we participate in the liturgy and receive tokens of it in the sacrament of Holy Communion, it will change us. It'll melt our hearts. It'll loosen our grip on our stuff. It'll prepare us to step into the community with lives marked by the generous heart of God. And it'll issue forth in, in the results, and this is the third point, the results, which are radical acts of generosity. Um, just a few observations here about what that looks like. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what um, was sold. Now, in a way, that is a little bit of hyperbole. There absolutely were needy people among them. That's why they had to do what they were doing. But the point is this. <coughs> the point is that, they, that the wealthy, that the community as a whole, and especially the wealthy people in the community, were becoming more and more and more attuned to the needs of the poor. Right, the people with means began to notice the struggle of the people who were just going day to day. And they began to take proactive steps to, to help them. Right? And so it's practical generosity, and it is serious generosity. This is not just like donating to the, to the public till a little bit of money. This is, they're selling their property. They're selling their houses. They're selling their fields. This is as radical as it sounds. Uh, maybe even more. Land ownership at that time was so bound up with identity and with your, I mean, with your family and with your security and who you were. Like, this is major generosity. Um, and then look what they were doing with it in verse 35. It says, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Um, they were giving up their resources, but they were also giving up control. Do you see that? They were not setting up their own charitable foundation where they could pull the strings and decide exactly how the money would be spent and maybe get the credit. They were selling their land and their homes and they were giving their money to the church and they were saying, you, do, you figure out how this needs to be used, not me. So they were giving up their resources and they were giving up control. Um, and then in verse 36 and 37, the last two verses, we have a little case study about Joseph, who's also called Barnabas. Um, it says he's a Levite, and he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Um, so you go, okay, that's good. We already knew they were doing that. You just told us they were selling their... their um, selling their land and their property and bringing the money to the apostles, and now you're telling us about a particular person who did just that. Why are you telling us that? 
Um, well, the answer, I think the answer is twofold. First of all, this is the introduction to, to Barnabas. And we, he reappears later in the book of Acts and becomes a pretty major player. So here we, we are introduced to him, and we, the first thing we learn from him is how the gospel has radically changed him. And so he has some credibility later on. The second thing, though, that's important to me about, about Barnabas is that the text tells us he is a Levite. Um, now, the Levites were a class of um, priests and temple, temple attendants. They were the people who worked in the church at the time in, in, in the Old Testament. And historically, the important thing is that Levites didn't own land. Um, they were provided for through the, through the church and they didn't own land like most of the other people did. And so we know that uh, Barnabas was a Levite and therefore he would have had no natural inheritance, which means that Barnabas was, was very likely a self-made man. Either he or his family worked hard and earned enough to go and buy land on their own. They didn't get it just by natural inheritance. And so if anybody had the right to say, this is mine, I worked for it, I earned it, let other people work hard if they, if they find themselves in need. I worked hard and I, like, he could do that with credibility but he doesn't. He doesn't do it. He voluntarily gives it up. Right? For the poor, for the church, for the community, in the service of the God who gave up so much for him. So, what, is the, I, I, what does it look like here? What does it look like in your life, in your family, in this church family, as you inhabit this community that you guys are so obviously committed to serving? Um, how, you know, how do we respond to God's grace with our finances? Um, three, three applications which I think are painfully obvious. Number one, give generously. We don't have to do it just like then. Right, but this story is told to model generosity. Like, here's, maybe this is a good thing to do. Imagine that you were in the church and you were experiencing this new church forming and living and doing its thing, and the first time someone did this, the first time that someone um, donated a hefty sum of money so that the church could serve the poor. You know, imagine hearing the leadership say, friends, we have... We, we have the resources to help the hurting. How'd the community feel? A little gospel, a little grace, a little undeserved care and love, right? That, that pointed them back to the mega grace of Jesus. Um, and now, so I can say this because I am not your pastor and I am not vested here, except I care about you and want you to thrive, but listen to me when I tell you, give generously to this church. Give generously to this church. It doesn't mean you have to only give to the church. I, I do not think that the Bible teaches that, and I am not suggesting that that's what you should do. I think that giving a diverse amount of money to different things is great, but friends, give generously to this church. 
All right. Secondly, give. Uh, or give to the church. That was secondly. Thirdly, give creatively. They sold their property and gave the money. Maybe we can't do that. What what other resource do you have that that can that can serve? And it you know it, it could be something that's financial. I mean, it could be your time or your ability to volunteer. It could be giving rides. It could be using your home. Like the largest resource most of us own is our house, right? And, you know, again, I, earlier I asked the question, like, who benefits from that? Well, friends, g- generous and open hospitality is using the resource of your house to serve the common good. So give creatively. Give generously. Give to the church. Give creatively. Um, audit your life for assets and then ask God how he can use them. I, I'm going to close with this and I'm going to zoom back uh, to the beginning and um, the, the sermon series that you guys are in is called Can I Get a Witness? And the idea of bearing witness um, is, is what you're reflecting on. So I'm going to ask you all to Reflect on the concept of bearing witness to your faith. How do you think of that? It, 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 can, it can sound obnoxious, can't it? Right? Like it's proselytizing or trying to convince other people that they're wrong and that we're right or that you're, you're coming across as superior to others or... You know, something like that. Well, think of it like this. A couple of weeks ago, over Easter weekend, we had friends from St. Louis uh, visit us. And on one of those days, we took them to Jenny's Ice Cream. That's good, right? Yeah, uh uh-huh. Like, it's the best, right? Yeah, uh uh-huh, right. Can Can I get an amen? So... We were telling them that. They're like, this, this ice cream's the best. You all don't even understand. And they were like, great, it's ice cream. We, we've had ice cream. We were like, no, you don't understand. So we go to Jenny's. We go in, and um, they give you the little tasting spoon, right, with a sample. And then they knew. They wanted more. That's bearing witness. That's what it means to bear witness. Right? We wanted them to know how amazing this is, and so they, they got a taste, and it wasn't obnoxious or argumentative or critical or self-righteous. It, it, was, a, it was a small foretaste of the deliciousness to come. Village Church, be the tasting spoon of the kingdom of God, of the, of, the, of the mercy of Jesus, of the loving care of a father who will stop at nothing, even the death of his own son to claim his people for himself, and who pledges us nothing less than a new heavens and a new earth. Be the tasting spoon. Live life together as a small foretaste of the glories of Jesus Christ. And if you want to do that in a way that will get noticed, if you want to bear witness, 
Treat your money and your resources like the church in Acts chapter 4 treated theirs. Generosity in service of the common good that mirrors God's generosity to us. That is bearing witness. Will you pray with me? Um, God, we give you thanks for your lavish generosity um, and especially for the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, make us all um, resurrection people. And I pray for this church as they, as they live out the grace and mercy of Jesus in community together. Lord, help them to bear witness to the, to the glories of your promises and your love and your care and your mercy by their love and their care and their mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.